Thank you for tuning in to Adversity University, and welcome to class. Hey everyone, this is Sean, and Garrett and I may have said this before, but today's episode is certainly top three, if not the best one we've done yet. It's, we're pretty early on into this journey, but I can't thank my former roommate, Robert Powers, enough for helping set up this connection, and he's working for the team that Jim owns now, so they've gotten to know each other, and when Bob told me about his story, I just, I, uh, I couldn't believe that we were fortunate enough to have him on. Garrett, what'd you think about the episode? First of all, you just said it, but shout out to Bob. Also shout out to Eric Otto, a former guest on the podcast who got to play in his first NCAA game the other day after battling stage four Hodgkin's lymphoma. Um, Also shout out to coach Brian Riley, who showed uh, showed nothing but great support to Eric and AIC. Um, But back to the episode. Sean said it, uh, we always get these after episode, you know, jitters and hype. Um, but that was one of the coolest episodes I think I've ever been a part of. Um, one of the best, uh, conversations I think I've ever been a part of such a knowledgeable guy and was willing to really talk about anything. I was very amazed at some of the things that he opened up about. Um, I don't want to really give any of this episode away. I think you guys just got to tune in and listen. Yeah, absolutely. His story is just so unique. And there were some really cool things about his playing days. But the fact that he has, you know, gone on this journey to help people, he's just gained so much experience. And I think that there was so much, you know, growth and knowledge that there was to be gained from him. So like I said, can't thank him enough for coming on. And we've said it before, too, but obviously knowledge comes through that experience. And one of the, the best things that I remember and love that he said was hockey wasn't, you know, his end destination. It was more of a stepping stone to get to where he is now, which is helping people through the experiences that he has been through. And I think that's the coolest thing ever. I mean, the guy played with Wayne Gretzky, played against Mario Lemieux, and he's saying that hockey wasn't the end goal. It's to be able to help people connect with them on levels that a lot of people can't connect with them on and get them through dark times. What an unbelievable human. Let's kick it on over to Jim Thompson. Monument Hockey Academy provides the highest level of developmental training available today. With intense focus on individual skills including skating, stick handling, shooting, game awareness, and competition, MHA offers players the opportunity to take advantage of up to 15 hours of on and off ice time per week to continue their personal development outside of team-specific training. Our coaches bring Tier 1, college, and pro experience and are trained in the latest and most cutting-edge programming in the world. Our academic support staff provides guidance and coaching with a variety of educational platforms, including online, in-person, and hybrid models, while ensuring students' NCAA eligibility from middle school through graduation. At MHA, our goal is to provide an opportunity for every player to reach his or her maximum potential, both on and off the ice. For more information or to schedule a visit, go to monumenthockey.com. Today's guest is from Edmonton, Alberta. He was selected 185th overall by the Washington Capitals in the 1984 NHL Draft. He went on to play 115 games over an eight-year span with six different NHL teams. After his time in the NHL, he has now moved on to being the owner of a junior A hockey team, the Aurora Tigers, but he is also an incredible ambassador for people struggling with addiction and mental health. He is a motivational speaker for his organization, Dreams Do Come True, and is also an ambassador, speaker, and advisory board member 
for Your Life Counts, where people struggling can reach out for help. Thank you so much for joining the podcast, Jim Thompson. Great to be with you guys. How are things in Colorado? Uh, everything's crazy. You know, we're going back into a second shutdown now. How about you? Yeah, yeah we uh, unfortunately, I just was watching the news before we got on. And the numbers are going way up. And what they're talking about is all of Ontario shutting down for two weeks and just closing up everything except grocery stores and that because the numbers are just going crazy. Yeah. Well, you know, anything that can help, obviously we're all for, but there's a lot of other things that I think are being overlooked, such as, you know, mental health, which we'll definitely get into later on and physical health of shutting down gyms and not able to see your buddies. Like we're, we're very social creatures. So I think it's a double-edged sword. Yeah, it's not good. It's not good. And I'm dealing, part of what I do is I deal behind the scenes with a lot of uh, unstable young men and, and adults, not just, you know, the hockey players and that. And it's, it's, it's running rampant. Mental health right now is, is a big thing. And I think one of the things that we're failing is dealing with all these young people sitting at home and being, you know, we, I don't know, it's very hard. I get it. You can't be out and doing stuff, but we, we need to look harder at keeping them active instead of them going the other way. A lot of, a lot of, um, uh, you know, addictions starting up when it wasn't there and silly stuff. Right. So not good. Starting in on your journey a little bit, you grew up in a household with 10 kids. Uh, what was it like growing up in such a full house? <laughs> you mean a full trailer? So I grew up, I grew up in, a, in a trailer park called Westview Village. It's in Winterburn, Alberta, outside of Edmonton. And being the youngest of 10, we never had 10 kids in the trailer at once. Maximum, there'd be five at a time, sometimes seven. You know, my other, older brothers were in and out. Uh, they had moved out. Um, so when you come from no money and you come from, it was funny, we were at a dinner with family yesterday and and I was telling the story that when me, dinner was served, because they brought up liver and onions, and as much as all, as a, all of us kids hated liver and onions, my dad loved it. So my father worked out of town in the oil rig, so he was gone for two weeks. He'd be home for two and a half days. So my mom would, you know, periodically make liver and onions. Getting back to it, there's, you know, five or seven mouths saying, as much as we don't like it, feed us, because that's that's what it was. So. Um, you know, it, it was unique. It was, uh, it was, uh, you know, we knew no different. I always say that. And uh, I wouldn't have had it any other way because growing up that way, you know, with nothing really and working, you know, I started working when I was nine years old, delivering newspapers and then timekeeping at a rink when I was 12. So if you wanted something, you had to go out and make your own money and it give you, um, that lifestyle gave you a purpose and a work ethic. And that I, cherish forever it's very admirable that you took the the bright side out of that situation and when you say that uh they were in it <clears throat> excuse me in and out of the house does that mean they were off at school or why were people oh, my in? my brothers and sisters yeah so my older three brothers they were uh they grew up in that uh you know biker era so they were harley riders and living that uh you know that lifestyle so they all moved out when they were young. So before I was even born, two of my brothers wrote when they were 15 and 16 years old. And, uh, you know, rumor has it, my father kicked them out. <laughs> so, but anyway, they were out of the house. So, 
like anything, you always come back to mom, right? So my dad would be out of town for two weeks, as I mentioned to you guys. So if they didn't have anywhere to go, all of a sudden, one of my older siblings would end up, you know, crowding into the trailer. And it was just like, okay, another, another body coming home. It was, it was normal for us. So, you know, they, like I said, they're, they were in and out and depending what was going on in their lives. And uh, yeah, it was always, it was always interesting. You're involved in so many different projects, helping people with concussions, addiction, suicide, and really any way you can help, you will. Um, but to understand how and why you do all this, we need to understand where you came from in your journey. So how did you get started in hockey? And did you ever imagine you would play in the NHL? So I quickly was asked to go ice skating. I was six years old. And at this point, there was only, I think, five or six mobile homes in this dirt field. And Westview Village, if you Google it, has become the largest mobile home park in, I think, North America. So we were actually the first family to live in a mobile home. And it was just a dirt field, right? Dirt roads. And so uh, as, you know, that following winter, um, this kid said, you want to go ice skating? I'd never skated in my life. So... Make a long story short, I borrowed his, his dad. I used his dad's skates, which were way much too big. But what was interesting is the minute I put the skates on, because uh, I do a lot of teaching, I could skate. I got, to, and, and he would, he couldn't, there's two boys there. He couldn't believe that I had never skated before, right? And we were, like, back then we we're skating on the ponds, the frozen ponds. So um, right away I fell in love with it, not knowing my father Grew up in Markham, Ontario, and was, you know, one of the best hockey players. And what what I was told by, you know, good sources was he, that he was going to play for the Boston Bruins in the original six. And at 17, he went to World War II and became a war hero. He was honored by General Montgomery. So he was a sergeant for four years over in Europe. When he came back, obviously hockey was over. He became a professional chef up in the oil rigs. So I guess the DNA may have been there, but I could skate right away. And then uh, I love telling the story. We played on an outdoor rink, the the Winterburn, you know, Hockey Association. So I went with these kids to the trial. I'm using those same skates. I had mitts on, no equipment in my jeans and my, my winter jacket and borrowed a stick because I didn't have a stick. So anyways, one of the drills that the coach did was you skate and I'll never forget it was snowing out, but you skate to the blue line, go down on two knees, up, red line down on two knees, up, blue line down on two knees. So I was doing anything, right? Yeah. So I did all this, and second time around, he goes, calls me over. He said, what's your name? I said, my name's Jim. He goes, do you have shin pads on? I said, no. <laughs> so then he goes, okay, you don't have to do this drill anymore, right? So anyways, make a long story short. They came up to me afterwards and said, we'd like you to play on the team. And uh, do you have equipment? I said, no. They, as a group, you know, they say it takes a village. They got me equipment. They got me skates. I My mom never drove a car. She never had a driver's license. She was from England. You know, her job was just to raise all these children. So I had to get a ride to hockey on every team I played on in minor hockey because my dad was out of town. So... I say this, I was blessed that I was good and people wanted to pick me up and take me home, you know, and I always had a ride to hockey. So that's through my journey up until, you know, 15 turning 16. I um, 
you know, I'll, I'll step back, not to jump around, but I'll just go through the hockey and then we can get back to the addiction and what I was going through. So then I ended up moving out to Markham with my Auntie Roma, who was my dad's sister, and my Uncle Jimmy, who was a recovering alcoholic. Unbeknownst to me, my parents were shipping me out there to give me help, give me hope. So at 12, I started drinking and smoking marijuana because I had money and there wasn't a lot to do in the trailer park. So I was very popular because I would provide this. We had a bootlegger. We drank a champagne. You guys are too young to know this called baby duck. And we'd smoked dope before going to school, right? Grade eight. So from 12 to 14, I was basically, you know, uh, a dope. And I was, we were traveling to a Spruce Grove was the high school that we'd go to and smoking hash joints on the way to high school. And, you know, at this point I'm 14 and I'm long hair and, uh, and then I just, one day I said, I can't do this anymore. And I really loved hockey. So I told my mom, I'd like to take correspondence, which was homeschooling. And I want to walk to the rink every day and train for hockey. She said, not a chance. And my brother, Frank, who sadly passed away last summer, um, or last winter, sorry, he was at the trailer and he said, why don't you let him? Because he's going to quit school anyway. And that was the path I was on, basically like my older brothers, right? I didn't like school. And so anyways, I did that. I quit school, quit doing drugs, quit drinking and cut all my hair off and quit hanging out with, you know, bad influences and uh, moved to Markham and played three years a junior and got drafted and played 10 years pro on six teams. Now you mentioned the draft and back then there wasn't really the rankings that they have now. They Now they almost have the pre-draft and you kind of know if you're going to be selected or not. Um, and it was a lot different back then. But what was that feeling like when you finally got drafted to the Washington Capitals? Well, it's a great question because I was told by my agent that I was rated in the third to fifth round, right? I'm like, wow. Because when you look at your stats and it was the type of player I was, right? Because I was all in, I was tough, I was fast. My stats weren't great, but they saw this player that, you know, showed up to play all the time. And that's a big thing, as you guys know. So we had a draft party at the trailer. And like you know, your Super Bowl boards, right? So all the we're selling squares on which team's gonna draft me. So my family's there, the place is packed, right? And the draft started at three o'clock, no, 12 noon. So, anyways, at three o'clock back then, it went from 12 to three, and then it shut down and they went on to different programming. So it I believe it was the third or fourth round when it shut off. So we're all sitting there and now you're waiting for the phone. And back then it was the dial phone. There wasn't cell phones and all that stuff, right? So make a long story short, at 9.10, my best friend, Dave Matthews, my mother, my dad was up in the oil rigs, and I were left in the trailer. And I obviously said, you know, wow, what a disappointment, right? And at 9, I think 10 or 15, the, the, my mom's pink dial phone rings. And it was the guy that drafted me, the late Jack Button. His son, Craig Button, is now on TSN. You guys would know Craig. So Jack Button says, Jim Thompson. I said, yes. He said, congratulations. It's Jack Button. We drafted you ninth round to the Washington Capitals. And that was a moment that I'll never forget. I can't imagine the agony. Like today, you know, if I want to check a score of a sports game, I have it instantly. I can't imagine waiting nine hours, assuming, oh, it's got to be over. There's no way I didn't get picked. It's, it was just, we sat there and, and I just, I remember just 
not feeling like a failure. I was more embarrassed that we had this party and everybody like, you know, you know, you're, you're proud, you're a proud athlete. You know, I'm old and that this was all going to go down and we're in the small little village that, you know, I was going to be, you know, in a sense, you know, make this whole village proud. And it's a trailer park, right? Trailer park kid getting drafted to the NHL. So it became a reality at that time at night. And yeah, it's a great question. Thanks for asking it. That's amazing. Well, moving on to your pro career, I played my college hockey in Pittsburgh. So I've heard a lot of arguments that if Mario Lemieux was healthy, he would have actually been, you know, arguably the greatest player of all time. Can you tell us the story of your first NHL game and how Mario was part of it? So, yeah, we, as when you play in the minors, like you get drafted and then you go to the American Hockey League. So I'm in year two and um, you're, I'll never forget it. I'm driving. I had, three, I, I fought a lot in minors and, and I had three fights in a game and I'm driving on the bus and my hands all bleeding, you know, like the knuckles, all the skins off. And I'm looking out the window. I'm going, do I actually want to keep doing this? Cause am I ever going to get called up? Like, is it ever going to happen? Or am I going to be one of those guys that just spends five, six, seven years in the minors fighting? Is it worth it? I'm making $25,000. I can go back home and probably make that in my brother's shop and all that stuff. So you start playing. So it was um, in 1986, we were playing Hershey Bears, Philly's farm team. And I did not know that this was being done. So um, Larry Plow, my coach in Binghamton, said, you're going to cover Ross Fitzpatrick. Ross Fitzpatrick was their 50-goal scorer, their number one player. He said, you can't fight. You know, they had Craig Berube, Chikrin, all these tough guys. He said, you can't fight, so just keep them off the scoreboard. So we played them on Friday and Sunday. Friday, he got one assist on the power play. We ended up winning the game, and I did a very good job. And then Sunday, all the I, I ended up seeing all the Washington brass was in the stands. I didn't know they were there Friday. So after the game, I did a great job. You know, they sent Ruby out to fight and all this stuff, and I, I paid attention to what was going on. So what, what we'd always know is when all the brass was that brass was there, the late Brian Murray, his brother Terry Murray, David Coyle, Warren Stralo, the late Warren Stralo, all, you know, because, you know, they're like the bosses, right? So when you'd walk out to the bus, if they would just give you knowledge, like, right, hey, how you doing, Jim? Good. And you'd get onto the bus. It's not like they're calling all their prospects over to talk. When you would see a prospect get called over, then you knew that they're getting their bag off the bus and they were going up to Washington. Well, I'm walking out and I'm getting ready to give it one of these. And they're like, wave me over. So I get called up, go to the morning skate, skating around. Brian Murray comes up to me, said, how you feeling? I said, good. He said, you nervous? I said, no, I'm, I've been waiting for this, Brian, right? Because he liked me because I was tough. I thought I was going up to fight Jay Caulfield or whoever their, you know, their tough guys were at the time. So anyways, after the morning skate, we go into the coach's office and David Poyle, everybody's there. And David Poyle says, uh, are you nervous? And I said, no, I said, I'm actually, you know, I'm ready for this. He goes, well, you might be nervous now. He said, because what you did with Ross Fitzpatrick this weekend, we want you to do with Meryl Lemieux tonight. Well, I'm going to tell you, my heart started beating and understanding that when you say this at that time, Meryl was the best player in the world. You know, I got to play with Wayne. Wayne's my idol. And being in, you know, that conference, I got to see Mario a lot. So I was in awe. 
I was, you know, you know, not to delay the story, but the game started. I started against him. He was pissed off that, you know, they called this tough guy up to to check him because that was common. That was one of the reasons, if you guys know this, besides his cancer, one of the reasons he retired was he was tired of guys like me, you know, coaches, you know, butchering him, we'll call him. So, anyways, a period and a half goes by. We're into the latter part of the second period. Brian Murray's words to me were, I don't care if he gets a breakaway, you stay with him wherever he goes. And I did a great job. He took a penalty on me. We're winning the game. We get a three-on-one. Kevin Hatcher, Kelly Miller. I leave Mario and I'm the third guy. Okay? So it's the triangle, 1D. Kevin Hatcher goes to pass me the puck back. And it's just one of those things where it's a saucer pass. <laughs> Over my stick, okay, to... Mario lifting a stick and swooshing up the ice on a breakaway. Did not score, but I got back to the bench and Brian Murray reamed me. He goes, like, he gave it to me. I sat on the bench like this after being the hero for a period and three quarters, saying my career is over. So that was my first game. It started off great. It was a great memory and turned into getting benched for the rest of the game. But I do have to finish it on this. So, I, I was in uh, the Ottawa Senators alumni box when they're playing Pittsburgh a couple of years ago in the final, or not in the final, in the playoffs. So Mario was two boxes down in Ottawa. So I said to my wife, I got to go talk to him. So I go down there. He's got security and all this. So he sees me. He's with a buddy in the box. There's a couple people hanging out. I said, hey, Mario, how you doing? Jim Thompson, I used to play. He didn't know who I was. So I said, do you remember a game in 1986 we're in Washington and there was this guy that Brian Murray called up to cover you and you were really pissed off and he starts laughing, right? He goes, I don't remember you, but I remember the game. He said, I got, I didn't like Brian Murray because of that and all this. So then I go, well, what you didn't know was it was my first NHL game. So he hits his buddy like this. He goes, holy F. He goes, could you imagine that in your first game happened to cover me? Meaning not bragging about it, but think about it, right? So he, I thought that was pretty cool. So we had a good chuckle and it was a great way to end that memory. But yeah, that was my first NHL game. What a game that is. And you, you briefly mentioned it, but moving from Mario to the greatest of all time, number 99, Wayne Gretzky. uh, What was it like to play with the great one? uh, The best player of all time. And uh, what was it that, uh, or what was it that he did that made him so great? Well, growing up in Edmonton, they had won four Stanley Cups. I'll never, ever, you know, when the day he got traded to LA, I was in West Edmonton Mall, which really people don't understand. Our city shut down that day. West Edmonton Mall, the whole mall, there's TVs and, and everybody was crying. Not everybody, most people were crying. Our hero was leaving the city of champions. Like Wayne Gretzky made Edmonton, say what you want. The Eskimos have won great cup with Warren Moon and Tom Wilkinson and these great football players. But hockey was our sport, and Wayne Gretzky brought four Stanley Cups. So moving on from there, I'm a free agent from New Jersey. I had four teams that wanted to sign me as a free agent. I decided on Detroit because they didn't have a lot of physical players. So that was my agent and I, Steve Bartlett. He said, this is your best pick. So anyways, we talked about my brother. My brother, I was at my brother's shop the next day. And Steve Bartlett phoned it in the morning. And he says, LA just matched Detroit's offer, but it's not the place to go because they got Jay Miller, Marty McSorley, Jeff Chikrin. They had a bunch of guys, right? 
And I said, no, I said, I'll find a way, Steve. I want to go play with Gretzky. I said, it's my idol. He's like, Jim, I advise against this. you got a way better chance of staying in Detroit. He said, I already can see this. You're going to end up in New Haven. I didn't care. I said, I want to go to LA. Right. So I, I went against his word and I had, I had, you know, the belief that I was going to fight my way up to it. So when you asked me that question, the first training camp with the great one, I was in awe talking to him, meeting him. You could just see the Canadian boy, gentleman. After playing with Wayne, the parts of two years that I did, I say this to everybody, he's a better father and human being than he was a hockey player. Because what he was special at is he would take all the guys down here and make them feel like they were up here. And that's why he was as great as he was great on the ice, but he made everybody feel part of it. And that's what I'll never forget about him. So you did grow such like a pretty unique bond with Wayne. Not only was your idol, but once you left LA, didn't he make a move to get you back? Yes, he did. So I got, I'm the only player in the history of the NHL to be selected in three expansion drafts. Um, I went to Minnesota the first year of them in San Jose split. I got traded back in the summer draft back to LA. Played that full year in LA. The next summer I got picked up by the Ottawa Senators. And it was Christmas. It was the Christmas break that at midnight, it was the freeze for the Christmas break. We were playing the Toronto Maple Leafs in Maple Leaf Gardens. So after the game, I come into the hotel. Again, there's no social media and all that. And the press is all there. And they're like, how do you feel? I said, how do you mean how do I feel? We lost, like, we lost the game against the Leafs. We were awful in Ottawa that year. They said, you got traded back to the Kings tonight. I'm like, wow. Right? So what happened was, when I got to the, we played San Jose. I flew into San Jose. Um, Bruce McDonald was, our owner was in the lobby. And he welcomed me back and he called me over. He goes, I just want you to know something. He said, Wayne made this trade. And Wayne and I, you know, obviously apart from protecting him on the ice, which was secondary, it was his words, my dressing room culture that they missed. And they brought me back there because I was, I was a, you know, a fun guy. I, you know, obviously I was there. I had everybody's back, but I kept everything loose. And he really enjoyed that, you know, Jimmy tell a joke or whatever. And we had a, you know, we had a really good bond there, him and I, and that's why he traded back for me. And it was his trade. So, and they traded, you know, for a 20 goal scorer, Bob Kodelsky. So I, I took it as quite the honor that he made that trade, that he wanted me back. Yeah, absolutely. It just speaks volumes to your character. And it also speaks to the dynamic of a team. You know, it's not just about having the best goal scorers. It's about having a great culture and a great room of guys who would mm -hmm. go through a wall for each other. Yeah. And that's, that's what he knew, you know, in Edmonton, it was Marty, Kevin McClelland, you know, uh, Glenn Cochran. They always had these guy character guys that would come in and out. And that's, you know, you look at all the teams that win you back to your Colorado avalanche. You know, you go back to those character players that, you know, always Adam Foote, even though he's a, a high-end defenseman, it was his character that stood out that helped that team win Stanley Cups, right? So, um, yeah, it was it was quite the honor. And I'll go down in my little world of hockey saying, wow, the greatest player to ever play thought that of me. It's crazy. And you weren't only a fighter, though. You did score a few goals and – your first NHL goal didn't exactly lead to a celebration. How did you score your first goal? So I was with Washington. We were in Chicago Stadium, tough rink to play in. And 
I got the puck in the slot and don't remember anything because Dave Manson headshotted me, probably would have been 10 games today. But I got it, and I had a really good quick release, pull and snap, and uh, I didn't see the puck. I didn't see – all I remember is laying on the ice and the guys all over me. You got you – I could hear things. Your first goal, this and that, right? So I come back to the bench and water, and then I realized that I had scored. Like, you know, and then that excitement, I got my first goal. Like, did that – because, you know, I was knocked out basically – blacked out from this headshot so back then there's no replay so we're in the hotel room at night and we had to wait for the news to see what shot and they ended up beating us right so i think it was seven four so they show all the goals and then you know rookie jim thompson gets his first nhl goal so i got to see it and all you see is i shoot and i just get leveled by an owl bite with dave manson so great sort of memory You'll always remember your first one. I mean, obviously, maybe not the way you wanted it to, but it went in the back of the net, right? That's right. Yeah. And he forgot to mention it was on uh, Ed Belfour. He's pretty good. Yes, it good. was. Yes, it was. And then later in my, my, my career, Chicago Stadium was good to me because I always had good fights there. Um, I, I had fought Stu Grimson and Mike Peluso. We ended up winning the game 3-1, and I got the game winner. And uh, again, on Belfour, five-hole. I got that one on film, so my kids, kids, they enjoy that. But um, yeah, it was, it was, you know, I scored four NHL goals, two against Eddie, so that was, that was. Um, and then later on, when I retired, I was at a rink here in Toronto during the lockout. We had all the Leafs and everybody were skating with us, so Eddie would come along and and I tease him. A little, he was a great guy. I tease him a little bit that uh, out of my four goals, two are on him. So great man, though. Tough stat line for Eddie the Eagle against Jim there. It's pretty funny. <laughs> yeah. Diving into a little bit more of a serious topic, though. Um, it seems as though alcoholism and drinking after games used to be a lot more prevalent. Do you think uh, players' attitudes have changed over the years, or is it maybe talked about less? Or what do you think has led to this uh, persona of less drinking after games? Well, I'll say this to you. The, you know, when I bring young people into, I call this my dream room, you know, uh, making the NHL is a dream for any young man. Getting there wasn't the work. Staying there was the work. And the higher you go, the harder it is to keep your position. So when I finally made it, I had six guys in training camp, legit right wingers that could take my job. So it was, you're always fighting for your job. And that's when it became serious stress, anxiety, and work. So um, I believe that today's culture with the money involved and the seriousness of playing in the minors compared to the pros is different today, that guys do not want to be riding the bus. And they, they get a sniff. They're going to go home. They're going to eat properly. They're going to have personal trainers, what they all do now. Back then, we didn't have that. And they are taking care of their bodies like it's, you know, it's, it's everything. It's their, it's their business. Their body is their business. And if they want to make a lot of money, they got to take care of their business. So I believe the culture has changed it all. And the guys who aren't paying attention to that, we still have our, you know, we still have addiction. We still have guys that feel they can still succeed and, and do, you know, what they want to do behind the scenes, but it catches up with you because there's too many good players around the world now and the competition's too stiff. So back in the day there, may have been a little bit of a correlation between drug and alcohol addiction and enforcers in the NHL. Uh, what do you think the underlying reasons were for that? 
Well, I, I listen, I came out, if you guys did your due diligence on me, I came out in 2011, I believe, and said that the enforcer role was killing, you know, all these guys, because I should have been dead, okay? And I was speaking for myself, it took on a whole nother life. Uh, Don Cherry, who you guys may know here in Canada, went on live hockey night in Canada and called me a puke, a turncoat and a hypocrite, along with a couple other guys. When I said it, they didn't say anything. And what I was saying is this, that night in Chicago, I do great against Grimson. I lost to Peluso and I score the game winner. I'm on cloud nine. The trainer yells in the room, hurry up guys, bus leaves for Detroit, blah, blah, blah. Right away I get a lump in my throat because Joey Kosher and Bob Probert are waiting in Detroit for me, okay? So that lifestyle for me, and I only speak for me, would make me drink more, would make me numb more, would make me the anxiety and the stress and the pressure of losing, going back to the minors, getting knocked out in front of 20,000 people. It was an, a roller coaster emotional ride for me that I would numb through poison. And then you look at the guys who have lost their lives either through suicide or through overdosing, heart attacks, whatever. There's no goal scorers in there. Okay. And I'm not going to go through the list of men you guys will know from Bugard all the way back to John Cordick. You know, it, it, it's, it was, I'm telling you this for me, that role was killing me. I hated it. I did not like fighting. I was a goal scorer. As you, you know, I scored 60 goals my last year in minor hockey. You know, I was on a 50 goal pace in the American Hockey League. I could score, but I, I give my brothers credit for this in a sense. I had protective instincts growing up with three brothers that were bikers and they're like hit first, ask questions later. You learn all these protective things, sit your back to a wall in the room, you know, and I'm listening to all this as a young boy thinking, wow, you know, nobody touches your family. Well, my hockey team's my family, right? So my point is I became this guy that I started fighting when I was 14 in, in junior B. And that's a whole nother story where I knocked out a 20 year old just because I remember hit first. So this guy cross checks me and I just dropped my gloves and caught him on the chin. Well, guess what? Next thing you know, everybody's going, oh, this 14 year old's a tough guy, <laughs> right? And then it didn't help where when I came to Toronto, I had a couple good fights in training camp. So we used to have this OHL yearbook. So on my thing, Alberta raised winger has established himself as the best fighter on the team. <laughs> well, everybody in the league is reading this, Bob Probert in Brantford, you know, Jeff Bukaboom in friggin' Sault Ste. Marie. So you get thrown into this by, and I didn't ask for it. I didn't. So when you asked that question, I came out and, and made the point of, in my life, it was, it was destroying me. And, you know, I was suicidal and, uh, you know, there's a couple pictures of me, you know, in the NHL where I know I was thinking of killing myself. That's how mental health was, you know, taking its toll on me and the anxiety of the whole thing. Imagine playing in the NHL and you're, and you're blowing your brains out. You mentioned that when you were, I think you said 12 or maybe even nine that, uh, you started smoking marijuana. Um, you said that you kind of drank to, to cope with the stress that you were feeling during these fights. So was it really during or after your career that be, uh, you began your battle with addiction? Well, I grew up, it's, I grew up with alcoholic parents. I grew up with brothers who did drugs and I, you know, almost killed myself at 14 when I was just turning my life around. Imagine I, I started at 12 
and was using from 12 to 14. It was Christmas Eve. My whole family's at my sister's farm and I drank about a straight bottle of rye just because I thought I could. Next thing you know, I was in a hospital and they're pumping my stomach out, right? So when I cleaned my act up from 14 to moving into Markham, I, you know, tried cocaine when I was 15, 16, actually. It was the greatest thing ever, right? So I always had that addiction, okay? So what happens is now, now I'm playing pro, I'm on my own, I'm making money. I was, I was a very serious hockey player, but when I could party, I could party, okay? So I was always serious about the game. I was serious about working out, but when there was free time to party, I was, I was partying. And in hockey, as you guys would know, there's always your group that you know who the partiers are. You got your group that's going back to the hotel and stretching out and doing ice baths. You got your group that's just going to go for dinner. And you got your group that grabs a hot dog from the hot dog cart and they're going straight to the bar. I always say there's three different teams behind the scenes. So I was, you know, I, I love to have fun. And then uh, my post career hockey ends. I'm depressed. I'm, I'm, you know, the, I didn't know what mental health was. I did, you know, I'm sitting there and I'm started smoking marijuana in a big way, doing cocaine later on, crack cocaine, Oxycontin almost took my life. And then 13 years ago, uh, um, on my son's birthday, November 17th, I surrendered. Right. So, but I went through the dark hole and I was suicidal big time. You know what? The addiction. I, I'm going to just say, I'm sorry. I'm going to say this. There is nights, you know, when I'm, I'm on, on smoking crack for two days and then Oxycontin, I was getting that from three doctors. My heart was beating out of my chest. I was scared to move my leg in bed thinking I'm, this is it. I got three beautiful kids. I'm living on my own. I went through a divorce, obviously blew up my life and I'm sitting there going, I'm going to die tonight. So it wasn't even like, Suicide was like self suicide It's like, you know, like induced, like, I know this is going to happen. I didn't care. Sorry, go ahead. Well, I was just going to ask a lot of people when they're in that, they don't realize how bad it is. So when did you realize that you had a problem and it's not overnight, you can't just say I'm done. Like, how did you get out of this place and on the road? It's, a, it's a great question. And I'll tell you how, because I love hockey. I love my children. I love, 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 you know. So what happened was, I'm driving my son to hockey practice. And normally I'd drive into practice. I'd sit in the rink and talk to the parents and let them get ready. And they go for practice. Well, all of a sudden I'm dropping him off at the front door and I'm running over the pub to only have two beer. Cause I can't have three or I'd be over and I'd suck down two beer. And I mean, I'd be saying to myself the whole time, you got a problem, but I couldn't stop myself. Then I come back, hide out in the rink and watch his practice. Pretend I was on my phone. So guys, people like it, it became, I was in my own little, you know, bubble. And that's when I knew I had a problem. Okay. Then that turns into, you know, staying up for three days straight. And, and, you know, I had my kids half the time. So they go to their mothers for half the time. They come with me on those weeks off until I cleaned up. It was, it was, you know, it was long, long nights, very depressing nights. You mentioned that you were depressed once your career ended. And my question without trying to sound insensitive is uh, what do you think caused this? Because the anxiety of having to fight the Bob Proberts and doing all that should have gone away once you retired. Right. Addiction. So why do you, why Addiction. Do you think, okay. Addiction. 
I'm going to tell you something. Snorting a line of cocaine is a powerful addiction. The first time I took a, a, a pull from a crack pipe, I was done. It was the most amazing feeling. I understand addiction. I understand how people try to quit. I'm a survivor and I'm lucky because many, many people like me either OD or they end up in jail from, you know, stealing to get more crack, whatever. It's, it's, it's just to a whole nother level. So had nothing to do with anything except addiction. Now I'm a full fledged crackhead and I loved it. Uh, the feeling was unbelievable. And, you know, until I realized that I was dying and I was, you know, it, it was coming to an end, then I had a decision to make. And, you know, I, I, I always admire a former, um, avalanche player, Theo Fleury. If you read his book in there, he said, and I complimented him the other day on this, he surrendered. That's where I, I realized what he was saying because those nights that I would sit there sweating and, and being in such a depression from, from, you know, saying you're losing, you're like, you just become a monster. You're a loser. Like, look at you. I couldn't, I go for, uh, uh, to the bathroom. I'd be standing there taking a leak. I couldn't look. I had a mirror right there. I couldn't look at myself. It was that bad. I got a picture over here, Gretzky and I, after winning the conference, uh, Campbell Conference Trophy. That was in my house. I couldn't, I couldn't even look at it because I'm, I'm thinking he's looking at me and saying, what, what the F are you doing with yourself, right? Like all these demons and, and stuff going on. So when you asked me that question, it had nothing to do with anything but the feeling of addiction. Sick, it's a sick, sick thing. You talk about the addiction, and um, I've had uh, people in my family have gone through addiction. Uh, my brother was an alcoholic for some time. He's been sober for um, at least over a year now. Very proud of him. Uh, you mentioned that you're sober now for 13-plus years. Congratulations to you on that. That's awesome. But when you're going through an addiction, and as everyone knows, throughout our everyday lives, our minds wander. So what my question to you is what feelings do you have and what would you tell yourself if your mind would start to wander towards those addictive traits of, you know, I want to go smoke crack or I want to do another line or I want to have another beer. How did you keep your mind on track? And not only that, addiction is an everyday battle. Yeah. So how every day do you keep resetting and what do you keep telling yourself? Uh, you guys are positive? good, man. I, I, I love your questions. They're really good questions. I'm going to say this. I've done a lot of podcasts, but these questions are really, really good. So first of all, I just celebrated 12 years. I'm in my 13th years, just to be correct. I got this bracelet from a friend of mine, Chris Joseph. His son, sadly, was on the Humboldt bus, Jackson Joseph. He was killed. So we had my wife and I brought the Humboldt survivors down to hometown hockey, Aurora Tigers hosted hometown hockey. So we brought 13 of them down to Aurora. They spent five days with us. Um, and this is an inspiration that um, I'll say this to you. So I will drive by a house that I used to use. And I go by places all the time when I'm in my everyday life. And I snap that. I snap that bracelet. And you're, you know, the question is great. How do I stay away with that the first thing is first things first if i'm if i'm thinking what i used to do in there and i, I look at i look out the, there, there's a window where i used to look out because i was a paranoid drug addict i'd be looking out the window oh, the cops are coming we're gonna get arrested tonight i was one of those guys right i used to drive everybody crazy so i would be i drive by and look at that window and memory lane and all this stuff so 
This number one, but this, this sorry, number two. Number one is this. I have a, uh, you know, I'll always be a drug addict and an alcoholic to the day I die. My, um, my not, I'll just say it this way. If I go back, I'm not coming back. So if I decide to start drinking and doing drugs again, it's a suicide mission. And I say that to my kids. I say it to everybody because if I go back to that life, then I'm checking out because I know what will happen to Jim Thompson. The minute I go back there, I'm all in and I can't help it. I can't stop it. And I'll be, I'll be phoning, you know, as many crack dealers and as many, I, I will get my hands around enough stuff that I will, that'll probably be how it ends. So my motivation is knowing how dangerous it is. You know, it's like, it's like having that gun rushing roulette. Sooner or later, the bullet's going to be pulled. I can't pull the trigger anymore because if I pull it, I ain't coming back. So I, I say that publicly and, and other addicts out there who are now clean would know what I'm talking about. And uh, it's, it's, a powerful, it's a powerful thing that I can't drink or I can't do drugs because I'm checking out if I do. So you're a huge part of many organizations that help others in need, including 360 Kids, Your Life Counts, Stop Concussions, and the York Regional Police. However, the organization that you run is called Dreams Come True. Can you tell us about how you found or founded this organization and a little bit about what you do? Yeah, uh, another great question. So back in 2008, yeah, eight it was. My kids and I had just gone through a divorce. Um, so we're sitting there watching Hockey Night in Canada. And Don Cherry came on in between periods and he goes, you know, to all you parents and coaches telling your kid they can't make it, shame on you because kids dream and dreams do come true. And I went, wow, that's a powerful statement. So I started drawing out some ideas. So what happened was, if you can see it, I got a tattoo, it starts down here, and it says Dreamer. It's got all my junior teams, my American League and International teams, my six NHL teams, and at the top of it, it says Dreams Do Come True. So what I did was, I went and got a tattoo, and I started a company, and that's when I was, you know, um, doing hockey lessons, you know, um, I had to become, you know, they say two years of sobriety before you can help somebody. So once that hit, I was all about, I, I'm, I want to help people. I don't want people to go through what I went through. So 12 years later, um, you know, through my junior A hockey team and the kids going out, we work at a homeless shelter called In From The Cold, as the ones you mentioned, all these different things that we do. And I can't give enough because I say this to anybody. And sadly, I met with the family in here on Monday and it was a young hockey player that's contemplating suicide. And we're talking about mental health. We're talking about all these awful things going on. And I'm looking at this 20 year old kid going, okay, hold on a second. So right now things are going well in that little situation. But you know, when I, when I tell people and I told the mother that that night, hockey wasn't my calling. Hockey gave me the foundation to do what I'm doing now. And what I do now is like scoring a goal, an NHL goal, when I help kids stay alive or, you know, a, a family with a tragedy. There's a lot of tragedy going on right now. So, you know, I, I can't get enough of it. As sad as it is, I want to be the guy. I'll give you an example. I, I work as an ambassador at a sports school called King Heights Academy. 
So I go down and I will deal with the issues. And there's a lot of issues going on in these, you know, in school, doesn't matter what school. And to help a, a 14 year old boy or whatever the age may be, just to figure out his stuff. And then you get a call from the parents saying, thank you so much because things have changed completely. Simple little thing, make your bed every morning. Instead of getting out of bed and being miserable, make your bed because your mom and dad will be happier and they may not yell at you. So all of a sudden these little tools that we use and these young people don't understand, I call it planting seeds. So dreams do come true is it doesn't have to be hockey right now it's about just being happy in our society so that's where my full energy goes to these associations and helping out it's amazing that you do that work and i think something that i've kind of pieced together from the various guests we've had on is that you almost wish that someone could have been there for you like you are for these kids right like is that what how this passion started Oh, 100%. You know, it's funny, we're, we're at this family dinner last night, and like, you know, we didn't have food. <laughs> so I enjoy food. And I never complain about anything, like, I'll eat anything and tell it it's a great meal. So when you ask that question, I wish I had somebody there to grab me and say, my uncle tried in, in Toronto, like he was a recovering alcoholic, but he didn't have that control over me because it was all about hockey. I go home in the summer, Right. So he wasn't that he was more of a father figure than he was a mentor, if you make sense. But yeah, if I would have had that one person to say, okay, we got to stop this now, I probably things would have been different. You mentioned that you helped out that 13 year old boy and you help people from all sorts of different backgrounds. You know, you help current NHL players even. And I was wondering, is the recovery for all of these cases similar for very different people? Or are there similar things you can do to help, you know, everyone? Everybody's different. You look, you got to look at their track record. You got to look at how long, what they're doing, um, what their, what their background is in fact of family, you know, where it started. You know, I told you mine started by monkey see monkey do. My parents drank 24 seven. They drank seven days a week. They smoked cigarettes every day and my brothers did drugs. So I saw all this stuff. You learn your, behaviors so everybody is different and you got to work with every situation differently and depending on what they're doing what they're on you know uh what their mental health is you know all these things i got to sit and i got to write pages of notes to say how can i help this person so you know it's it's like scouting a hockey player in a sense you know in a, in a totally different way you got to find all the ins and outs of what you're what you're drafting You also run a hockey school called JT Prospects. Can you talk about the impact you try to have on these kids as a mentor, not only in hockey, but also on their lives after sports? Yeah. So for anybody interested, if they YouTube Jim Thompson's prospect camps, they'll see a bunch of videos from years past. Um, I celebrated my 20th year last year. What I always say in those videos to these boys is what they're going to learn off the ice being young men and going on to business owners, fathers is more valuable than being a hockey player. So through the seven weeks we spend together in the summer, I'm constantly planting seeds of commitment, of respect, all these things that we need away from the rink. Because if you're doing it away from the rink, it's automatically happening in, happening in the rink. So obviously I've helped guys get to the NHL, but the most rewarding 
emails or phone calls I get are from my past students thanking me because they've become great fathers, they become successful in business, or they just become happy in life. And when I hear that they, you know, thank you for getting me through this tough time or what you taught me here, it's invaluable. And, you know, at 54, I, I got so much energy for it and so much time for it. I, I don't know how much longer I'll be doing it, right? But I love it. So until I probably can't skate anymore, I'll keep doing it. I know we've already mentioned a ton of things, but um, you're also a part of the Ice Hockey Classic to raise awareness for concussions and mental health. And we know hockey's a really physical game. And as an enforcer yourself, um, I believe on the podcast I listen to, you suffer you know, from ringing in the ears and symptoms like that. How yeah. important is mental health and how can we improve our mental health? Well, it's, it's the new, you know, like back when I played concussions, go – your roommate wakes you up for every two hours and you take a couple aspirin, right? I got eight documented concussions. And as we know, every time you got hit hard, your brain's shaking. So how many more throughout my career? So when we talk about mental health and concussions and all that, we need to be very aware of the individual, what they're thinking. You guys see the movie concussions, right? Say no more. Like the, the fact that what you learn out of that with the Pittsburgh Steelers and all that, and then you see how many suicides and how many, you know, as they tell us, the brain hardens and we can't live with ourselves anymore. And that's why these former athletes are killing themselves. It's a scary thing. One of my very close teammates, you know, Todd Ewan, who was another enforcer, my, my wife and I were just at the 20 year anniversary prior to his suicide with him and his beautiful wife, Kelly. And, he seemed the same happy-go-lucky guy. This was not a guy that did drugs. This was not a guy that was an alcoholic. He had five beautiful kids, was successful, and he shoots himself through the head in his basement months after we were together. And I have to wonder, right? And Kelly had his brain studied and has CTE and all that stuff. So the importance of taking care of these young people, and that's why my fight years ago was we don't need bare knuckles against the brain, Right. And the fight was, oh, people don't get hurt in the fight. Well, guess what? The boxing world, you see some of the boxers that are suffering from memory loss, from speech impediment, a whole bunch of things. I believe we're going to start seeing that in the UFC with the amount of blows to the brain. And it's certainly there in football, hockey, and even basketball, soccer, the ball against the head. You know, so um, we need to be more educated. We need to protect the athlete and these young people. Yeah, I think it's good, too, that um, from the time that that movie was based on concussion, I think that we've seen a significant improvement um, in the technology and need for safety in all of these sports. And as you said, I think that we need to continue to develop it further. But uh, one person that it made me think of when you brought that story up was Joe Murphy, who went from winning a Stanley Cup to being homeless. Um, and you think that that's not a normal thing for any you know, elite athlete to go through. So there has to be some underlying cause. Well, talk to Joe's ex-wife. You know, he took a hit and got a major concussion. And she said he was never the same. I never met Joe Murphy. I know people who know him. Soft-spoken, low-key, passive. And all of a sudden, he turned into a raging, tempered, right? So what changed in Joe's life so dramatically now 
that he gave up his beautiful family, his life, and he's homeless living out here in Ontario in, in the wilderness. Something had to go wrong. So don't listen. I only know from myself what I deal with every day. You know, I know as we get older, we our memory, but I got 24 seven ring and I've had it for years. I got, you know, times where I've got dark days and I will be sitting in my wife and I said, I just don't feel good in my head, my head. And it's a scary thing because I feel so depressed and so like, I can't, like, I couldn't imagine living every day like that. And I can understand if I had to deal every day by some days, I, the way I feel, it's scary. And I'm very fortunate of a healthy life, but I still have issues. And as I get older, will they get worse? Will it be an everyday uh, depression in a dark room and all that? It, 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 it just stop it. We need to take care of the brain. What's something you do to help yourself when you're going through a dark day like that? Let's see. I got a gym downstairs. I work out two and a half hours a day, six days a week. I'm in better shape now than I did was when I played. And I have to push myself on those days. It's easy when I feel good. But when I don't feel good, I have to force myself. And the only thing that I know is when I'm done, it's going to make me feel better. But to get through it is torture. Yeah, that's something that I've actually heard a lot growing up. You know, you have to do it on, even on the days you don't feel it. And yeah. up until now, I always thought that that meant physically. Like, oh, I just don't want to go. But it's also very applicable mentally, like you just said. And that's the first time I've heard it like that. Yeah, I, I know. I know that, you know, um, when I tell my wife I don't feel well, she'll say, go down to the gym. Now she says, get down to the gym, right? We'll be going out somewhere and she, I'll be like, I don't, my head doesn't feel right. She goes, I'll wait, go work out. So she gets it and I'll go and it will make me feel better, right? And there's no doubt it makes me feel better, but it's a struggle. Oh my gosh, boys. It's good that you found your out and you know what it is that can help you. And um, you've used your experiences and sobriety to help others through their dark moments. But how can someone who hasn't gone through these times help a loved one who is in a dark place? Oh, you got, you got to reach out to, you got to reach out to, uh, I call it experience. I call it somebody who they're going to relate to. Um, I'm very fortunate that I played in the NHL because here in Toronto, most of the people I deal with, are hockey fans. So whether it's a mother, a father, they know they, they, you know, they might not be the biggest fan, but it's like, it's not that it gives me an edge, but they, they seem to, you know, relate to me or want to talk to me. And as soon as I tell them my story, then it brings their guard down and we, we build, at least we start a bond. So what I recommend to people is find somebody that can relate to your family member, your loved one, because this, at the end of the day, you got to relate to something or somebody to open up and, you know, at least give it a chance. And I'll tell you this, when I was going, I went to AA a few times, my best friends who sadly passed away, uh, took me to AA and I met some counselors and all this. And I looked and I go, I ain't telling this guy shit. Right. I went to uh, marriage counseling. I looked at it. You're not going to hear anything from me. So you have to be able to find somebody for that person that you love that they're going to actually open up to. Very important. Yeah, I was talking to a, a former veteran and he told me once he got back from war, he suffered from a lot of PTSD and 
there were groups that were recommended to him, but he said he drove there 12 separate occasions and not once did he walk through the door. Cause similar thing, you know, he didn't want to talk to some stranger about his problems. No, so I no. think it's so important and that you have a support group. You need to find, and you know, it's like anything you got to work for. It. And if you're, if you're serious about helping a family member, then don't stop, find the right you know, the right connection to help that person. Because I'm going to say this, I, I'm living proof that you can get out of it and survive it. And there's many of us, there's many of us obviously that fall by the wayside of ODing or, you know, taking our own lives and all that. But don't give up on, you know, I'll tell you this quick story. I'm working at the homeless shelter. A lot of them are being kicked out of home because they're drug addicts. They're, you know, they don't work. Mom can't take them anymore. So they're on the street. So I get to sit there and I get to talk and I get to listen. And I'm dealing with a, a young guy right now who's got a beautiful daughter and wife that actually wants him back, but he can't stop smoking crystal meth. So he's starting to get it, you know, he's starting to get a little bit, you know, because I get him and I'm starting to, you know, get through the cracks a little bit, and, but he's not there yet. And until that person wants to surrender, they're, they're, they're just, they're not coming out, but you got it. You can't give up. You got to keep planting seeds and you got to keep trying. And I understand families who give up because they can't take any more hurt. I get it. But there's got to be somebody out there that can save these people's lives and you got to find them. I just want to open it up to you because obviously you're so experienced in all this and there are a lot of people out there who are hurting. How can someone, you know, contact you or, you know, one of the organizations that you're a part of for help? So they can go on to my website is uh, jimthompsonsdreams.com. Um, you got my email on there, uh, social media, both of my Twitter and Instagram are jimthompson33, no P and Thompson. Um, so jimthompson33, my hockey number and direct message me. if I, I would love to help in any way I can with any loved one, believe me. Well, this has been incredible and you know, Garrett and I have learned so much from you and your story is very powerful. But we want to thank you so much for coming on. I thank you guys for allowing me to tell my story. Um, I always say this to when I talk to groups, if I help one person today, then we're winning. And uh, great job that you guys are doing this and giving people like me a chance to tell our stories and uh, keep up the good work. Thank you. Only one of me to shield you all from the enemy. You're a superhero. You're a superhero. Thank you for listening to this episode of Adversity University. You can follow more news about Adversity University on our social media pages. Our Instagram handle is adversity underscore university. Our Twitter handle is adversity underscore UNIV. And our Facebook page is Adversity University. If you know of any high-level athlete or professional that has an interesting story of overcoming adversity and you think they should share it, you can email us at adversityuniversitytalkshow at gmail.com. You can also use that email if you are interested in becoming a sponsor for Adversity University. We look forward to bringing our listeners more content from interesting guests weekly, so stay tuned on social media to see who could be next and what our past guests are up to now.